Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been enjoying ourselves for a few weeks examining Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And it occurred to me that it's especially appropriate that I happen to be recording this three days from Valentine's Day. Which brings up the question of when, seasonally speaking, the the play's action actually takes place. The title gives us one suggestion because Midsummer was the name for the summer solstice. The solstice is the longest day and the shortest night of the entire year. It actually takes place on June 21st, but because the old Julian calendar did things a little bit differently, even to this day it's sometimes said to be June 24th, but it's actually the 21st. However, nothing in the text pins that date down for sure, and in a play full of ambiguities and uncertain identities, we have references to several other festivities. This was one of Shakespeare's festive comedies, so-called, and what festival it is remains a bit tantalizing. There are references to May Day and to Valentine's Day, and references to Valentine's Day imagery, including Cupid, and the symbolic colors of red and white, which are the colors of Eros, the god of love, who became Amor in Roman, in Latin, and eventually popularized as Cupid, the little kid with a bow and arrow, whose arrows could make people either fall in love with the next person they see or fall into hate or antipathy with that same person, which is exactly what the so-called love juice does in the plot of the play. And that love juice, which is the rather undignified term that the text itself actually uses, that love juice was created when Cupid missed his target with an arrow, hit a white flower, and turned it red, according to Oberon. The turning of a white flower red is comparable to the story out of Ovid's Metamorphoses, the Roman satire or epic, depending on your point of view, which tells the story of Pyramus and Thisbe, a story directly comparable to the plot of Romeo and Juliet, star-crossed lovers who die, and in doing so, their blood stains the formerly white mulberry into red. It is the tragedy of Pyramus and Thisbe that the rude mechanicals in Midsummer Night's Dream are trying their best to dramatize, to put on, for the wedding festivities of Theseus and Hippolyta a few days hence. Therefore, we have this cluster of imagery that all refers to transformational seasonal festivals associated with spring and early summer.
That, in turn, goes along with the fact that Midsummer Night's Dream is one of a group of Shakespearean comedies and romances that Northrop Frye turned, termed the comedies of the green world. And that term turned out to be so useful that it stuck in the criticism of Shakespeare. It's a commonly used term to this day. And what he meant by it is that there's a whole group of plays in which the action moves from city or court or civilized, ordinary experience out into a wood or forest in which many strange and transformational things happen. And it's by going out into that realm that changes take place that enable the happy ending to occur, which occurs after the people come back in to where they left and the action comes full circle. Before Midsummer Night's Dream, there's Two Gentlemen of Verona as a green world comedy. After Midsummer Night's Dream, there is As You Like It. And finally, at the end of Shakespeare's career, the romance, The Winter's Tale. This green world in Midsummer Night's Dream is particularly associated with the Celtic realm of fairy. The fairies are, as we take up the plot where we left off last time at the beginning of Act Two, the fairies are the last group of the cast to be introduced, and they belong to Celtic mythology rather than to anything native English. So we have Theseus and Hippolyta out of Greek mythology and lore. We have native English imagery with the rude mechanicals. We have the new comedy plot of the lovers that has influences from Roman comedy. And we have the, the realm of the fairies. The fairies in actual Celtic mythology are not the rather cute people that they are here. That was a transformation that Shakespeare was instrumental in beginning. The real fairy were awesome and frightening, closer perhaps to Tolkien's elves than to the little cute mustard seed and peas blossom sprites that we have in this play. Nonetheless, the Celtic realm of fairy, sometimes by scholars called the other world, was a realm on the other side of this reality. It was actually an alternate reality on the other side of ordinary reality, here signified by the magical woods. Midsummer Night's Dream is a play of opposites, opposites that conflict, all sorts of opposites, masculine and feminine, love and hate, all of which, nevertheless, these conflicting opposites have a tendency to turn into each other. In other words, to metamorphose, to change. And that term metamorphosis brings up once again the enormous influence of Ovid's Metamorphoses on this play. Numerous references to Ovid, transformations of one thing into another. So much so 
that and these things sort of develop one following from the next so metamorphic and transformational that reality to the poor people suffering all this seems to become unstable and at various points in the play people wonder whether they're actually going mad the fear of madness all of this in a play with an intricate plot that is at the same time quite hilarious though not to the poor victims who are caught up in it. The green world, green after all, associates the action with nature and therefore with fertility. Fertility being appropriate, everything fits together to the spring-summer season, season of rebirth and fertility. However, as we return to the plot of the play and the second act, all is not well in the green world. Oberon and Titania, the queen of the fairies, are the embodiment of the forces of nature and natural fertility, and they are not getting along. They are one of the many instances of conflict in the evening action of the play. And when the spirits of nature are conflicting, it leads to disturbances in nature so that there have been storms and floods and so forth and so on. What are they fighting about? We find out at length in Act Two, the famous opening line when the two meet up with each other unexpectedly in the woods, Oberon, looks at Titania and says, ill met by moonlight, proud Titania. Titania tells her followers, begone, I have forsworn his bed and company. To which Oberon says, am I not thy lord? Practically the first thing out of his mouth male patriarchal command, I am thy lord because I am the male. And that gets them into a marital quarrel that goes on for a couple of pages. And they start accusing each other like any marital quarrel. This one starts dragging out all the dirty laundry of the marriage. And it's a series of accusations that go on, and they're accusations of infidelity, even though this is an irrational argument because there is apparently no discernible actual infidelity involved here. The accusations are Titania accusing Oberon not of being unfaithful himself, although she does briefly mention a girl named Phyllida, but most of her accusation is about the way that Oberon has been furthering the romantic purposes of Theseus and procuring, so to speak, Hippolyta for him. And Titania clearly has no use for Hippolyta, which she refers to as the bouncing Amazon. And this is really 
Titania being correct when she says these are the forgeries of jealousy, except she has her own forgeries. They're forgeries because they're false. They aren't actual infidelity. He turns right around and throws in her face, her partisanship, serving Theseus and enabling him to gain the affections of an epic catalog of women out of classical mythology that Theseus actually had to do with. So it is sort of war by proxy here. None of it makes any rational sense, and that's probably the point of it. The real problem is a power struggle. All that is pretext that their therapist would probably tell them, now you have to stop evading. These are not the real issues. What is the real issue? Power. And the power finally comes to focus on the real bone of contention, which is control or possession of a human boy. They're fighting over possession of a boy. What does Oberon want the boy for? Simply to be a member of his train. Why does Titania want possession of the boy? Out of emotional reasons. And here we venture upon one of the great themes of Midsummer Night's Dream, the friendship of women. Leave it to Shakespeare, the only earlier author, pre-modern author I can think of, who regarded the friendship of women as an important theme. And he did. It runs all the way through Midsummer Night's Dream. Here, Titania wants the boy because the boy is the son of a woman, a human woman, yes, but a friend, a woman friend. She says, his mother was a votress of my order and sat with me often, she says. And when she was pregnant, we have laughed to see the sails conceive and grow big-bellied with the wanton wind, which she, with pretty and with swimming gait, following, her womb then rich with my young squire, would imitate and sail upon the land to fetch me trifles and return again as from a voyage rich with merchandise. Wonderful image of these two women sitting, the human woman, big and pregnant. They see the sails bellying out on the ships of the water and playfully the pregnant woman imitates them, pretending to be a ship moving with a pregnant woman's gait out again and back again. And just a lovely lyrical image followed by, but she, being mortal, of that boy did die and for her sake do I rear up her boy, and for her sake I will not part with him. If I were directing the play, I would urge 
the actor playing Titania to put as much deep feeling into those lines as she possibly could. Why does Oberon want the boy simply as a power thing, male prerogative? He's a boy, he becomes a member of the male troop. But the woman's reason is feeling and friendship. And it's a moving moment. And I'm sorry to say she will lose the boy. This is not a play that in some ways would make feminists feel very satisfied by the end of it, even though Shakespeare is aware of all the issues centuries ahead of time. Nonetheless, here, she will not give this boy up out of sentiment. And the argument's a deadlock. She goes off with her train of people. Oberon makes a speech which is a plot mechanics speech in the sense that what he is eventually going to be talking about is the making of the love juice, the potion which makes people fall in and out of love with one another. But in doing so, he gives one of these operatic, lyrical, aria set speeches that Midsummer Night's Dream is so full of. And you need some footnotes to tell, okay, this is rather haunting, but why are we getting it all? And there is actually a hidden reason that is a topical reference. That's why we all need the footnotes for it. Oberon says to Puck, his chief follower, we'll get to Puck in a moment, but he says to Puck, one time recently I saw Cupid all armed and he took aim at a vestal throned by the west. Cupid with his bow takes aim at a vestal, in other words, a nun, a virgin, and looses, loosed his arrow, but it fell short, it missed. I marked where the bolt of Cupid fell. It fell upon a little western flower before milk white now purple with love's wound, and maidens call it love in idleness. Out of that herb, Oberon will make the love juice. In any annotated edition, you will certainly get a footnote cluing you in that that is a covert reference and compliment to Queen Elizabeth, the virgin queen all through Elizabethan poetry, references to Diana, the virgin goddess of the hunt, the unmarried virginal, and we think of Hippolyta, the Amazon, fitting in with that, even though from Greek mythology, or to Cynthia, goddess of the moon. These are almost always references on some level to Queen Elizabeth, the ostensibly virgin queen. That was part of the ideology, the propaganda imagery of the royal court. And 
Here, it figures into the plot by giving us this love juice of a flower that is said to be purple or red, interchangeable colors during this time period. And the plot thickens from there, but is momentarily interrupted. This happens a lot in the woods. You can't have a meeting of any sort in the woods. The fairies can't, the rude mechanicals can't, without interruption, because everybody is running around like crazy people through these woods, and they keep running into each other. There's an element of farce in it. And here, they are interrupted by Demetrius, who is running, and Helena pursuing him frantically. And Oberon says, well, what's this? Let's hide out and see. And Demetrius is out here pursuing the woman he really wants, who is Hermia, who has run off, as we recall, with Lysander. Those two love each other and are having to elope through the woods because of parental opposition to that union. How does Demetrius know to pursue them? Sadly enough, and we're back again to the theme of women's friendship, sadly enough we learned at the end of the very first scene of Act One that Helena is going to go and betray her woman friend by blowing her in. She goes and tells Demetrius, oh, Hermia just took off into the woods with Lysander. Why? To curry favor with Demetrius, whom she is madly in love with. She has betrayed her woman friend for the sake of a man. Feminists of our era have sad stories to tell of how often that happens in women's friendship, at least traditionally. And Demetrius hightails it into the woods with Helena, however, hot in pursuit. It did not exactly get her what she wanted. He wants, if anything, less to do with her than he did before. And we'll grant the guy at least he is honest and forthright. He tells her, do I entice you? Do I speak you fair? Or rather, do I not in plainest truth tell you I do not nor I cannot love you? I have not given you false signals, false pretenses. I have been honest with you. I'm not into you. Fair enough. Helena's answer, another astounding moment in Midsummer Night's Dream, which is full of deep psychology of various sorts, this seemingly fluffy little lyrical farce has many depths in it, some of them as here psychological. Helena responds with an extraordinary speech of erotic psychology on the part of the woman. He says, I tell you I do not know I cannot love you, to which she responds, and even for that do I love you the more. I am your spaniel, 
and Demetrius, the more you beat me, I will fawn on you. Use me, but as your spaniel, spurn me, strike me, neglect me, lose me. Only give me leave, unworthy as I am, to follow you. What worse place can I beg in your love, and yet a place of high respect with me, than to be used as you use your dog? That is extraordinary psychology right out of Fifty Shades of Grey, and that's not a joke. The darker side of Eros includes, because Eros always has wound around the will to power, and the union of love and power always leads to dominance and submission fantasies, and Helena is all but saying, put a collar on me. Fifty Shades of Grey is a pretty apt reference, except that Midsummer Night's Dream is much better literature. And Demetrius wants no part of this, and he continues to run away from her, and Helena follows after. In total role reversal, as she herself recognizes, she says in line 232, Apollo flies and Daphne holds the chase. Apollo, in Greek mythology, chased Daphne, who had to turn into a laurel tree to escape him, and that is another tale out of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Here, Daphne's doing the chasing. And we move again back to the fairy plot after this brief interruption. And the next thing that happens is that, well, in Act Two, Scene Two, it's time for Titania's nap. And th that's not a good moment to take a nap, it turns out, because her estranged husband has love juice in his hand. And while she is sleeping, he anoints her with the love juice so that she will fall in love out of revenge with the next thing that she meets when her eyes open. Meanwhile, Oberon has instructed Puck to go out. He tells Puck there is a couple in this woods, a man and a woman, apply the love juice to the guy. Puck goes out in the woods and applies the love juice to a guy, but what none of them have realized is there are two couples in the woods and two guys. The intent was to apply it to Lysander. Uh, nevertheless, what happens is that he applies it to the wrong man uh, and instead, it, I'm sorry, to Demetrius, and instead applies it to Lysander, who wakes up, sees Helena, and immediately falls in love with Helena and forgets all about Hermia. This is only the beginning of total confusion. This is, it takes us to the end of Act Two, and we are only beginning the 
total confusions in the woods. Then we return at the opening of Act Three to the rude mechanicals who are also out in the woods. Everyone has moved out in the woods in the middle of the night. The mechanicals are out there because they need to rehearse. And they're having problems with the play that they want to put on somewhere or other. They have found a script that versifies the tragedy of Pyramus and Thisbe, as they say, out of Ovid's Metamorphoses. And they're really worried about the plot now that they take a look at this play. Bottom says, there are things in this comedy of Pyramus and Thisbe that will never please. The mark of Shakespeare's comic low-life characters in play after play is that they mangle language. I'm sure it's by no means politically correct by certain standards these days, make fun of the uneducated, but nevertheless, it happens consistently in the comedies, in the low-life plot that is usually contrapuntal to the main plot. And the particular form of language mangling that the mechanicals perpetrate is to call one thing by the name of its opposite over and over again. And here we get the comedy of Pyramus and Thisbe, and of course it's really a tragedy, not that Bottom or the rest of them know the difference or know the real meaning of the terms. But their worry is not over terms, their worry is now that they see the plot, they are very worried about the reaction of the audience because what they're worried about, and this becomes, again, taking something that's played on the surface for farce and turning it into something thematic, what they worry about is the audience taking this play of imagination, this fiction on the stage, taking it literally, believing literally in something that sophisticated people are supposed to dismiss as a real fiction. So, oh, Pyramus has to kill himself, that's going to upset the ladies. And oh my God, there's a lion in here, and that is really going to scare the ladies. So they figure that the audience is as naive and literal-minded as they are, and they're going to have one of them make a speech assuring the audience that no, it's only make-believe, it's okay. That taking of imaginative things, literally, actually believing in these images, it marks them as fools by rational, sophisticated standards. But there is something we would assure people as we would assure children that no, it's only make-believe, and there is something innocent and childlike about bottom in particular. But out of the mouths of babes, as we shall see, the belief in the fictions of the imagination is another theme of the play, and perhaps the deepest one that contains all the rest. We're not done with confusion, however, because in the middle of this rehearsal, Puck plays another trick. 
Puck is Oberon's servant among the fairies. He is actually a sort of import, so to speak, because he's not out of Celtic mythology, he's out of English folklore, a trickster spirit that lived in the countryside and would play tricks on the country people if they didn't do things like leave food and saucers of milk for him. And here he's found employment with Oberon, and it's trickster employment, but that's his nature. He is a trickster figure. In original folklore, it was, in fact, a generic term, a puck. Here, it becomes a proper name, puck. Nonetheless, trickster is as trickster does, and what puck thinks is going to be great fun is that waiting for his cue, Bottom goes off stage and comes back on stage as they rehearse with the head of an ass instead of a human being. A metamorphosis again in the woods. This one actually does not happen to be from Ovid's Metamorphoses. It's from another Roman satire, the Go the golden ass of Apuleius, about a man who is turned into an ass magically and has to suffer and see the world as a poor ass, often beaten and mistreated, would see it. And here is Bottom with the head of an ass, and Puck just thinks this is totally hilarious. And uh, the others, his cohorts, are scared witless and go running, even though Bottom keeps speaking to them and says, you know, it's me, what's wrong with you? And Snout, one of the rude mechanicals, says, oh, Bottom, thou art changed. And Peter Quince, who is the director of the play, says, Bottom, bless thee, thou art translated. And if you get a scholarly edition, you might get a footnote that will point out to you that in Latin, translatio is the Latin translation of the Greek metaphyrine. In other words, it's another word for metamorphosis. And Bottom complains, this is to make an ass of me, of course. And at that moment, Titania wakes up, opens her eyes, and sees Bottom, and falls madly, dotingly, hopelessly, in love with this one low-life human being, two, who has the head of an ass. The plot is gaining speed, but in fact, we are far from done with the transformations, with the turning of one thing into its opposite, and into a lot of entertainment, even though, as I say, it's not too entertaining to the poor people who are suffering out there, but we know that in the end, all will go well. We are close to the middle of the play by this point, and we will take up after Valentine's Day next week from this point again.
Thank you.